John 2.12 On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the wine water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Good morning. Before coming to the text itself, uh, I think probably most of you know, at least if you've been here for any length of time, for a number of years, we have supported uh, Jen Blevins as a, a missionary. She was with Reach Global, which is the, and the kids can be dismissed. Uh, she was with Reach Global, which is the missionary arm of our association, the uh, Evangelical Free Churches of America. And she worked with a ministry called Global Fingerprints down in Haiti, which is a child sponsorship program. Um, so she'd work right with the kids. Uh, providing basic necessities, but but also the gospel, and did that as a single woman for many years, and uh, met eventually a Haitian man who worked with the Global Fingerprints Program. They were married, which was pretty awesome. Um, I don't know exactly when, but it wasn't that long ago. Well, tragically, both of them, uh, I think, as I understand it, it happened for both of them after they were married, meaning neither one of them knew this before, but they both uh, were diagnosed with cancer. And Jen's husband passed away relatively recently. So I don't, I don't know if you know that or not, but let's take a minute and pray for Jen. And um, he, he, he was, oh, what's it called when a man's wife died? A widower, right? A widower. He was and had two kids, and they're still around as well. So let's pray for them. I don't even know how to pronounce his name, J-E-A-N, Jean. God, I, I pray for Jen, that you would comfort her. I, it's hard not to think of the song we sang earlier, the sure and steady anchor. I pray that she would hold fast to it now. And as, a, as we sang that, I even thought the anchor is sure and steady, but our ability to hang on to it isn't. And so I, I thank you that you are not only a sure and steady anchor able to keep us from crashing into rocks or, or drifting into trouble um, by, by remaining firm, by remaining certain in your promises and immovable in your plans, but, but also you, you are the one who gives us the strength to hold fast. It's not simply that you are sure and steady and that we then need to muster up the strength to hang on but 
you give us the strength that is required to hold on to the sure and steady anchor. And we pray that earnestly now for Jen and for her kids. God, please comfort her. I, I don't know how we might help as a church, but I pray that if there is some way someone here would think of that and we would be able to do that. We, we know that our prayers are heard and that you can provide for her a comfort that nothing we can do could. Um, and so we trust in that, but we pray as well that we might be able to demonstrate your love for her and our love for her through some other gesture. Please help us to think of what that might be and be a blessing to them. And we pray as well for um, the kids she's ministered so faithfully to for so long and having come back to get married and trying to figure out what's next. We pray that um, the gospel would be clear to them and that all that Jen has proclaimed to them with the rest of the team, she would be able to proclaim even more faithfully and fully now uh, through this tragedy. I know that's her desire. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Well, in preaching through John's introduction, <clears throat> the first handful of verses, um, if you remember, it took us a, a while to get through, but it's chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's it's when in broad terms, John sort of gives us the categories we need to make sense of the events he's going to tell us about the life of Jesus. Well, in preaching through that, it's just so easy to see the deity of Jesus. He, he's talking about Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, as God himself. Similarly, I imagine if you're like me at all, when you read through the rest of the New Testament other than the Gospels, it, it just it seems that the deity of Jesus is just so so plain that the New Testament letters speak of him with lofty and high and mighty terms of all that he accomplished for us as the Son of God. There's a way in which, if that's all that we've taken in, or or if that's the the primary or, or, or even main way that we think of Jesus, the gospel accounts can be a, a bit jarring. <laughs> they really, really focus on the humanity of Jesus. As, as Christians, we acknowledge, we often say fully God and fully man. That's probably not the best way to say it. Truly God and truly man. Uh, we, we acknowledge that Jesus is both and that our salvation rests in that. And yet when it comes to the humanity of Jesus, our heads spin sometimes when we, when we really think about it. It feels almost wrong to think in these terms. Well, much of the way John describes Jesus throughout the entire gospel, seem, he seems like a pretty normal, relatable guy, even if exceptionally zealous. Have you given much thought to that, I wonder? When you think of Jesus, do you think, all of us, I'm sure, lean one way or the other, but in my experience, most of us lean way one way or the other, and, and if that's you, do you think more of Jesus in terms of the fact that he's God or the fact that he's man? Can you imagine him as an actual person that you could spend time with and hang out with at a, a wedding? I don't know if they did some of these goofy dances we tend to do, but can you picture Jesus getting in on that? And Because John certainly means us to think that way. Do you picture him as a real person or more often do you focus on a God who is above all? 
He is both, and we need to have good categories for both. Well, in our passage for this morning, we get both. (laughs) You get to see both things happening. He's functioning as human and divine. The day after calling and receiving Andrew and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel as disciples, the group did something that I bet all of us have done, that normal people do in the normal course of life. They went to a wedding together along with Jesus' mom, Mary. In the course of the ordinary event, however, we see that Jesus did something that was anything but ordinary. While all of us probably have been to a wedding, none of us, I imagine, have done a miracle at one. Well, he did. This was his first public miracle that John makes a point to point out, the first manifestation of this kind of his glory, and it led to another level of awe and wonder and belief among his disciples. So here's the big idea, and then I'm going to pray again. The big idea in the short scene is the simple fact that Jesus is the Christ, and John chose the stories he chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like this one, miraculous stories like this one, to help his readers see and believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, and through that have life. That was the exact effect it had on Jesus' disciples, including John, the one who wrote this gospel. He wrote this because he saw this and was convinced by this. And here's the thing for us. It's the exact impact it's meant to have on you and I as well. Kids, you're meant to understand miracles to be miraculous. You're meant to say, no way. Really? That's awesome. Because it is. And you're meant through that to believe. To trust in Jesus. I love also that we just got to sing the, this, the, what's it called? The Creed or something like that, where the whole thing is unpacking. So how, how do we come to be saved, to become Christians? We believe on the name of Jesus, but what does that mean? We just got to sing an entire song unpacking what that means. That's all in, in this. So let's pray that that would be the case. That is, see and believe. In Jesus. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this clear mingling of Jesus as human and divine, as man and God, the God man. Thank you that they're both there and that there's just no blushing by John that both are true. Both are equally true. Both are necessary for us and for our salvation. Both are tied to Jesus' glory that he manifested. He did it as a man who was God. Please help us to see this. Help us to grow in our belief as the disciples did. Or for some, perhaps this morning, who are not Christians, the hearing of the power and glory of Jesus and turning water into wine would awaken in them by your grace. Real belief, genuine belief. This is Jesus. He did this. This is him in whom we believe and have life. So maybe some this morning will find life for the first time. And for the rest of us, help us to believe more fully. That is, to have our minds increasingly renewed, to trust in the things that are true in order that we might be transformed to live in every way as you mean us to. And as we will see, to do joyfully that all that Jesus has said. Pray this in his mighty name. Amen. All right. So I'm going to talk for a little while probably a little while longer than I even should, on something that I think is really key. Before we get to the story itself, I I, want to say a word on something that's important throughout the entire Bible, 
but especially in John. There is there are depths. There, there's a simple story you can follow. Jesus uh, became man. He eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He became man. He lived as an example, suffered, died, and rose again. You can get that. That's the whole of the Gospel of John. But in that, and, and that's remarkable, and if that's all we had, it's amazing. But embedded in that is something that helps us to see even more how remarkable that is to help us get all that we can out of the gospel. The whole Bible has this, but John especially. The the gospel of John is filled with biblical symbolism that typically serves to amplify. God inspired the authors, John here, to write what they wrote. And part of the inspiration was to put symbolism in it that is meant to help amplify the events, the key events within it. And so our passage this morning, there are two in particular that I want to explain the role of this type of symbolism generally first, and then this specific, these specific symbols second. And the two that I want to point out are weddings and wine. So marriage is, by God's design, God made marriage. He didn't need to make marriage. There are other ways people could have procreated and united and But God made the institution on purpose, and he did it to be a living picture of the gospel and a sign pointing to the great wedding that is to come. What's more, three short years from the events described by John here, in three short years, Jesus would drink wine again with these men and the other seven at the Last Supper and institute communion as a sign of the new covenant. Both of these things are woven into the fabric of John's story here, this, this, these brief verses in the gospel to help us more fully appreciate its significance. And again, you'll find this kind of thing in the entire Bible when you learn to look for it. All right, so let me back up just a minute. The study of these kinds of things typically falls uh, under a banner or a discipline called biblical theology. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again right now. Biblical theology has one main assumption and then two areas of focus, main areas of focus that result from it. You got to get this. I'm going to land this plane, I think, in a helpful way in a little bit. But get this concept at first. So one main uh, assumption And then two main areas of focus that result from it. The main assumption is that the Bible, in the Bible, God tells one grand story. The whole Bible, together, tells one grand story. Different books, different authors, different times, different genres, and different immediate purposes, meaning each book in the Bible is written for its own specific purpose within its own specific time but all together meant by God, planned by God, intended by God to tell one bigger story. That's the, that's the main assumption. And the two main areas of focus in biblical theology are, one, identifying that story, telling that story, capturing, grasping, communicating that story, the one meta story as well as possible. And two, and as a part of that even, tracing the key themes that run throughout it. Okay. In more concrete terms, then, that's all concept. In more concrete terms, and in the way of an example, here's what I think. I, I think this is, this is pretty good, actually. I, I, if you were to take a second and say, what is the whole story of the Bible? I would love, I'd love for you to 
plug your ears and don't listen to my version. Come up with your own and then go back and read or listen to this later and test it against mine. But I think this is pretty good. Really simple. Kids, you'll all get what I'm about to say. But I think this is the whole story of the Bible. God's salvation of God's people through God's son for God's glory. It's pretty good, right? I mean, it's nothing like, it's not rocket surgery. You've all heard each of those things, but I think saying it that way is pretty good. I made that up. (laughs) Not, Not really, God did, but I made up the way to say it. So God's salvation of God's people through God's son and for God's glory. There you go. Insofar as that's the right way to describe the overall storyline of the Bible, and insofar as biblical theology is a legitimate way to study the Bible and approach it, we should expect to find threads of each of those four clauses in the Bible. That's how you get the big story, is that the main elements of it are woven throughout it. That's any good story. And so again, God's salvation, God's people, through God's Son, and for God's glory. So if that's right, We should expect to find threads of God. Whatever it is we need salvation for, to be saved from, God's Son and God's glory woven throughout these 66 books. And we do. Let me give you an example. All of that, by the way, is a way to say that the point of the Bible is Jesus. Salvation comes through him. He is the Son, and he is the one who brings, ultimately, God's glory. So for that reason, for example... Jesus' words in Luke twenty four twenty seven shouldn't come as a surprise to us. That is, if the Bible's main story is about Jesus, it makes sense that we would find Jesus throughout the whole story, and we do. While walking with his disciples after the resurrection, Jesus, and I'm quoting now from Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them, these, these disciples that he's walking with, they're confused, they're not even sure what happened yet, he's risen from the dead, and they're not, not quite making sense of this. Jesus walks up alongside of them, and it says he interpreted for them from the beginning what Moses and all the prophets or, I'm sorry, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He told them where he was in all of the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. I would love to have been there. As you know, Jesus didn't come in the flesh until the time recorded in the New Testament, which we see in John here. But Moses and the prophets, centuries, millennia earlier, pointed to and talked about and spoke of Jesus. Biblical theology works to find those places where Jesus, for instance, shows up in the Old Testament and helps us to fully appreciate him in the New. Okay. In the same way, there are other themes as well, lesser themes that are woven throughout the biblical story. And learning to recognize them adds depth to our reading. It adds confidence to our understanding and trust in the Bible and worship to it. It enhances our worship. The, the events are amazing in and of themselves, but when we see that God had planned them and told of them and promised them way in advance, it just serves to amplify our joy in God. So in our passage for this morning, the presence of two of those themes serves to draw our attention to and highlight the significance, which are already significant, of these events. They help us to recognize that the events in these verses are bigger than they seem, even though they're big. Okay, weddings and wine. This is not the place to do an exhaustive biblical theology of each of those, but I want to give you a taste. No pun intended. That's not even in the notes. I just came up with that. 
The first wedding took place between the first two people ever created, which highlights its importance, Adam and Eve. And it took place in the garden and was officiated by God, which also highlights its significance. And that way it serves as a paradigm for all future weddings as the normal pattern for men and women in adulthood. What's more, we learn from Jeremiah and Hosea, for instance, and other places in the Old Testament, that there was a deeper meaning behind marriage because God describes himself in some ways as being married to his covenant people. The idea is further developed by Paul, so weddings and wine, further developed by Paul in Ephesians 5, where he explains that marriage between a man and woman was designed by God from the beginning to be a living picture of the future marriage between Christ and his church. It's a living picture of the gospel. Marriage isn't just marriage, it's the point, which is what makes getting it right so significant. It is an instrument from God for his people to put on display the gospel. And the fullest expression of all of that is found in the fullness and the one true marriage, Revelation 19 where in the fullest, fullness of time, all of God's people are invited to rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's awesome. We could do the same thing with wine, tracing it through the feasts given to the covenant people of God, and especially the Passover. The promises that God has given in it to make our hearts glad. Psalms and the Last Supper where Jesus explained that it represents his blood that would be shed for us and to the new heavens and the new earth where it will be a part of the eternal celebration of Christ and his bride. These are themes that God created. God created weddings in wine to amplify and help further explain the big story of the Bible. The point I'm trying to make is that with even a basic understanding of the purpose for which God gave us these things, weddings and wine, and even a basic understanding of how they're described in the Bible, our reading of John 2, 1 through 12 is greatly enhanced. It's amplified. It is not a coincidence that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding and involved wine. These two things were created by God to represent the very heart of why Jesus came to earth. Those two things are at the heart of why Jesus came and what he would accomplish while he was here. All by itself, turning water into a wine is miraculous, of course. All by itself, it ought to inspire in us awe and wonder, of course. Read through a biblical theological lens, however, reading through a biblical theological lens, however, takes it to another level still. Grace, this this was not a random miraculous act that Jesus sort of on the spot concocted at Mary's request. It was not an afterthought. It was a part of the unfolding of God to save the world from our sins. It was the the, the unfolding of the plan of God to save the world from our sins, to present us to his son as a pure spotless bride and bring us into the eternal wedding feast of joy with the new wine of Jesus. Amen? That's an amen. Come on, you guys. We're we're like northern Midwestern people, but that's an amen. This is awesome. This adds significance to an amazement to something that was already pretty significant and amazing. 
So with that uh, as the backdrop, then let's let's get to the text. You might already understand this, but it's important for us to have at the front of our minds coming into this passage, the fact that the cultural di- differences between first a first century Jew and us today are pretty significant. Weddings among Christians are a pretty big deal today, although, in my opinion, even as the one who over uh, officiates many of them, they're not a big enough deal. We don't we don't make a big enough deal of weddings today. And every time I, I keep trying to tell this young, starry eyed couple, make it a bigger deal. And they don't. But so th- those of you who are contemplating marriage, make it a big, big deal. You got to get some more trumpets and stuff. And. <laughs> I don't even know how to do it, but it's bigger than we treat it. They, they, they had a better sense of that in the time of Jesus. It's nowhere near as big of a deal today. No wedding I've ever been to anyway is nearly as big as it was in this passage. To really appreciate what's happening here, we have to take our picture of a wedding and multiply it exponentially. Truly, everything was heightened. In first century Jewish weddings, the expectations were bigger. The celebrations were bigger. The decorations were bigger. Even among the poor, the food and drink were more important. The weddings and honeymoons lasted longer. This was probably a week-long celebration. But we're probably nearing the end of a, an entire week of celebrating this. So when I say, like, get trumpets and stuff, I mean, get them and blow them for seven days. And honeymoons, in some ways, lasted for a year. That's pretty awesome, right? So anyway, the point is you gotta, you gotta take what you know of a wedding and multiply it significantly. And it is for all of those reasons that what probably seems like a relatively, I mean, I don't know, you read this, the wine was ran out. Oh well, you know, you know what happens, right? That's get over it, drink some water or something. Like no, you know, no, no big deal, we think. But it is for all those reasons that what probably seems like a relatively small thing to you and me was really a big deal to the family of the bride and groom in John chapter 2, verse 3. That the wine ran out would have been no small matter. Rightly or wrongly, it would have brought a kind of shame and lasting stigma on the family, especially the family of the groom, who was particularly responsible for all of this, that would not soon, if ever, have been forgotten. And and the idea here is, one, is bigger than you think, but two, in addition to the rest of the significance of Jesus' actions in this passage, it was no, what he did was no small act of kindness to this family. So the bottom line is, this is a real situation that they're confronted with having run out of wine. And so although the passage doesn't explicitly state it, the fact, though, that Jesus and Mary were both invited to the wedding suggests it was a a close family member or friend and that's enhanced by the idea that of Mary's involvement and investment in authority like she she had a role in this that often would have been uh reserved for very close family member or friend and the fact that she played that role suggests even further that it was they were probably connected to the groom somehow again whose family would have been mostly in charge of all of this Mary, Mary clearly felt responsible to help prevent the social potential social catastrophe that would have resulted from running out of wine in a way that was beyond what a normal guest would have felt. The fact that Joseph isn't mentioned suggests that he had already passed away by this point, at some point after Jesus spoke in the temple and here. 
And with Joseph no longer present, it was natural for Mary to look to Jesus, her oldest son, for help, for something she otherwise would have looked to her husband for. Therefore, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and she expected him to help. Well, it's not certain exactly what Mary expected from Jesus. It's, it's, it's not certain that she expected a miracle. And I have no reason to believe that what I'm about to say actually happened. But it's because of passages like this that I sort of imagine Jesus as a child. You know, he's got this little toy ball and he would make it levitate and try to hide it, you know, so nobody saw it. Or causing his siblings' toys to just sort of disappear. You picture little, little Jesus, you know, just temporarily, of course. But the thing his brother was playing with just disappeared. Or you picture him working with Joseph as dad in the wood shop and he accidentally nicks something and just you know sort of you know miraculously fixes the mistake he made and and just picture mary saying oh jesus i told you to knock that off you can't quit doing that there's nothing recorded that suggests any of that happens but i like to think something like that probably did and in 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 mary's mind then she she knows she just knows her son is different i mean she of course, saw much through his birth, angels and the prophecies. And so we don't know for sure that she expected a miracle, but she knew somehow he had the power to help in this situation. Jesus' initial response then is at least curious on the surface, isn't it? Instead of a quick, sure thing, Mom, I'll see what I can do. He said, woman. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. On a few levels, this sounds sort of cold or disrespectful or at least off-putting. It's as if Jesus didn't want to be bothered by his mom with the problems of someone else. He didn't want her to try to put something like that on him. That's what it sort of sounds like when you first read it, I think. Well, as the rest of the passage bears out in the rest of the gospel, that was not the case. Jesus' reply does, however, point to two really critical things. And I hope you can get both of these. First, with his public ministry having begun. Get this, get this, get this. This is a big deal. And it becomes bigger and more explicit in John and in the rest of the Gospels as well. But with his public ministry having begun, the nature of his relationship to his mom would never be the same. As he made clear, you can check this out, Matthew 12, 48 to 50, and other places. But as Jesus made clear, he was now Mary's Christ before he was her son. That's important. Who are my mother and brother and sisters, he said, those who do the will of my father. That's why Jesus called her woman instead of mom. That's that's baked into the, that cake. Now, now, kids, you can't really talk to your moms that, that way, the way it sounds anyway. But really, probably a better translation would be ma'am. He said ma'am instead of mama or mom or something like that. We, it sounds different than it would have sounded even then. But, but even ma'am was not a familial term. It, it was a term of respect, but also formality. That's the first thing to see. That's the first thing for us to understand as well. We let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Jesus is first our, our Christ. And he, he and our relationship with him defines who we are more than any family 
or friendship. But here's the second thing. His priorities as Christ were different than and trumped over his priorities as son. That's a big deal, too. That's why he asked, what does this have to do with me in light of the fact that his hour had not yet come? I need to unpack that a little bit more, too. Uh, This is one of, if you have the sermon outline handout things, one of the applications on the back that I would really encourage all of you to do is get a harmony of the Gospels. You can get them online. You can buy them printed. If you don't know what that means, all that it means is it takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tells it in chronological order. So uh, there are certain events included in some Gospels that aren't in others, and, and the order is interesting sometimes in John because he's not as worried about the chronology as Luke is, for instance. And a harmony of the Gospels walks you through the events of Jesus' life in chronological order. It's more like a a truly historical account. So one of the applications I encourage you towards is to get one and and read it over the time we're in John. But if you've ever read one, you'll notice that Jesus' ministry builds, his public ministry builds in its clarity and in its public nature. What do I mean by that? Early on, Jesus performs very few signs and teaches mostly among his close followers. It is only as he comes closer to the time of his crucifixion that he works in more public and controversial ways, which is, in fact, what what brings about the crucifixion. Does that make sense? And so it's as he functions more miraculously and teaches more publicly and teaches more explicitly about who he is and why he's there, it is that that the Father uses to bring him to the crucifixion. Again, this is why at first, if you read in a a harmony or a chronological account, this is why at first he often commanded those. Do you ever wonder he would do something miraculous? And then he'd say, but go and tell no one. You ever wonder why that he did that at first? That's why. So to this end, get this, Grace. I, there's a lot more that could be said, but the sermon's already too long. The, to this end, that is, to the end of keeping things on the down low until the proper time, John's gospel pictures this mysterious, regularly you'll see this, this mysterious combination of Jesus strategizing how to not let this ball start rolling too fast that goes to his crucifixion, and the Father miraculously directing this. Look up John 7.30 later, and you'll see that the Father miraculously keeps people from understanding something because Jesus' time had not yet come. You won't understand John. You won't understand a lot of what Jesus says if you don't understand that he is working to keep the Father's time by being strategic in what he reveals and when. So the bottom line is that Jesus knew the more he functioned as the Christ, the more he'd invite the ire, the anger of Israel and Rome. He had come to die. He wasn't trying to avoid dying. But the Father had given him work to do on earth first. To perform a miracle of this nature, this early and this publicly, would certainly draw attention that would complicate things. It was not yet time for him to go to the cross. So again, as evidence that Jesus meant nothing disrespectful, and in response to his reply, Mary took it to mean that in spite of this problematic timing, Jesus would come to her aid somehow, and there into the aid of the bride and the groom and their families. So in preparation for whatever he would do, Mary commanded the wedding servants, do whatever he tells you. One more pause, and then we'll fly through the rest. Last week, I gave you a critical question from the text. Jesus questioned his followers, what are you seeking? And I I urged you, I urged you 
Get clear in your own minds on what you are seeking from Jesus. Don't don't move on until you're clear. What is it that you most want from Jesus? Why are you here? I told you to pray and ask God to help you really understand that the answer to that question for you. In these simple words, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gives us another version of that. What do I mean? In a very real way, the heart of the Christian faith, that is what it means to be a Christian, is doing whatever he tells you. What what Mary said to the servants regarding how to help the wine problem is really the call on all of our lives always. Do whatever he tells you in the certain knowledge that it is always better than every alternative. Whatever Jesus tells you to do is always better than whatever you would do otherwise. Embedded in this are two key truths that I really want you to settle on. Just like, what are you seeking? I want you to settle on these two things. Number one, Jesus is king and has the right to tell you what to do. And second, that he is a good king, so everything he commands is perfect. You have to come to grips with that. So would you ask God to help you settle on this? Would you ask God to help you appreciate the absolute reality that Jesus has the right to command and the goodness to make it right? That's cool. And would you ask God to help you realize that all Jesus commanded is given to us in the Bible. All that he requires of us is told to us in our Bibles. These things are at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That is, eager willingness to do whatever he tells you is the joyful privilege and responsibility of all who claim to have faith in Jesus. So this is not a mere throwaway claim that Mary made. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So here we go. We're going to move quickly now. Jesus was announced as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. He'd begun his public ministry by calling already five disciples to himself. The six of them, Jesus and the five, joined Jesus' mother at the wedding that Mary was an important helper at. And in a serious social foible, the groom's family hadn't ordered enough wine to last the whole celebration, and it had run out. Mary brought the issue to Jesus, who clarified his status and mission for his mom. And now certain things hung in the balance. What would Jesus do? What would happen with the wine and the wedding? For the most part, all of that was meant to lead to the events of 6 through 11. If you didn't already know, what do you picture Jesus doing? If you didn't already know what he did, what do you imagine that he might have done? Would he leave it up to the family to figure out so as not to prematurely usher in his time? Or maybe you picture him helping, but in a manner that would keep the controversy to a minimum. Maybe, maybe he would slip aside. He's a carpenter, right? You know that. And maybe he'd offer to build something to the, for the winemaker in response for more wine. You know, he'd solve the problem without, or maybe, you know, he's just going to, all right. <laughs> I'm going to make it rain wine, people. <laughs> and just, you know, just the big miracle where there's no, no mistake in anything. We'll see what Jesus actually did j- just in a second. But before we do, get this, Grace. Here's a simple fact that what Jesus actually did, like most of what he actually, what, what, most of what he did, and much of what he calls us to do, doesn't make total sense for any of our semi-sanctified common sense categories. It didn't perfectly shield him from revealing his power or reveal his power in such a way that no one could deny it. And here's the lesson. Honoring God often means thinking, feeling, and doing things 
that defy our usual categories. There's a place for ordinary wisdom in the Christian life for sure, but too often we treat ordinary wisdom or even semi-sanctified wisdom as the ultimate authority rather than the Word of God. Does it make sense for an undermanned army to get rid of most of their soldiers before battle like Gideon? Does it make sense for a hungry people to eat bread that grows overnight from the ground and not collect any extra like Moses? Does it make sense for old barren women to be the mother of countless covenant children like Sarah? Of course not. The things Jesus did often looked foolish to many and flew in the face of their semi-sanctified common sense of the religious leaders. Following him. Grace. Doing whatever he tells you in this world, therefore, means that we will often find ourselves in the same place. If your aim is always to fully understand Jesus' commands before you obey them, or to look dignified in all the things you do in obedience, or to seem reasonable to the ungodly people, or even tragically, in some cases, to the Christians in your life, you will regularly veer from the path that Jesus has given you. So, with that, what did he do? What he did was a miracle. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tested, tasted the water, now become wine, and he and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. As a favor to his mom a service to the groom's family, and as we'll soon see, see, an expression of his glory and a means of growing the faith of his disciples, Jesus took around 150 gallons of ordinary water and turned it into wine. As you probably noticed, absolutely nothing is said about how he did it. There's no mention of prayer or dipping his finger in the water or putting maybe a grape, one grape in each one or something cool like that. And the reason is none of that was the point. It was water, and then by Jesus' power, it was wine. (laughs) As simple as that. Contrary to the foolish musings of some today, there's no way around the fact that the Bible is, from front to back, unapologetically supernatural. There's no way around the fact that John records this story in his gospel under the Spirit's inspiration precisely because he was one of the ones who saw this. He was one of the ones that through this was convinced that Jesus was the Christ. He witnessed this miracle miracle, and understood it as proof that Jesus was the Christ to bring, who brings life to all who believe. So John, John's gospel records eight miracles of Jesus. He makes a point of explaining that this was the first. Let me conclude with three things. Number one, he didn't make ordinary wine. John is explicit about this. He made the best wine. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I don't want to say more about this than the text does, but at the very least, it helps us to see that Jesus doesn't offer up the bare minimum. He's not merely utilitarian. He loves and serves generously and beautifully, filling the jars all the way to the top. And he loves and serves excellently. 
we'd do well to follow in this example. Second, in this text says explicitly as well, he manifested his glory. In addition to explaining that Jesus did more than was merely necessary, John also made special mention that in performing a miracle, he manifested his glory. That is, Jesus' act of turning water into wine demonstrated that he had power and authority beyond that of any mere man. This miracle was an unmistakable display of the glory of God that was unique to the Christ, the Son of God. And we are right to bring him continual worship and praise because of it. And finally, this miracle caused his disciples, it says, to believe in him. The very last words are, and his disciples believed in him. That's curious, though, isn't it? If you were here the last couple of weeks, that's a curious thing that we find. Certainly, they believed in him already, right? They, they've followed him here, first of all, but they also have already called him the Christ, him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, the Son of God, the King of Israel. They, they clearly believed in him already, but, but John's gospel tells us, and his disciples, and he's one of them, Believed in him. What was he? What was he getting at? In short, and this is a big deal. This is almost done. Our entire Christian lives until heaven are about as Christians. Our entire Christian life, lives until heaven are about increasingly believing in Jesus. What do I mean by that? I hope some of you find real and significant comfort right now. Some of you are 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 struggling with your faith, you're, you're, you're struggling with doubt. I hope some of you find real comfort and significant comfort today to hear that we are saved by having faith, not a certain measure of it. What do I mean by that? Your, your faith may be small, but God-given faith, even, even as small as a mustard seed, has as much saving power as an entire ocean of it. You hear that. Those of you who are struggling, who, who, who feel like you're too often wandering, it's not the amount of faith that you have that ties you to the finished work of Jesus. It's, do you have any God-given faith? And if you have even the amount of a mustard seed, it has as much saving power as an entire ocean of it. God's grace helps us to grow in our faith, and we thank him for that as Christians, and, and therein increasingly trust God in our daily lives. But the continual prayer of the Christian is, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here John's point is that Jesus helped his believing disciples with another pocket of their unbelief. And if you ask him, he will help you too. All right, here's the end. Jesus performed a miracle. The awesome, glorious nature of that was amplified by the fact that it's wrapped in the biblically significant themes of wedding and wine. The disciples saw this and were rightly amazed and rightly strengthened in the belief that they'd already been granted. Those ought to be the result of all of us, of every one of us as well. And yet, as I close, I want to keep a crucial question in front of you that John seeks to answer over and over and over. And that if you read the gospel, you have to wonder. You have to wonder this. Why do some people see these things and respond in worship and belief in Jesus' day and in real time and in ours? And why then do others, perhaps most, respond in indifference or mockery or even anger? It, it makes, John's gospel here makes plain that the other servants saw what Jesus had done. 
But there's no mention at all of Jesus adding a single convert as a result of this miracle witnessed by others. Why is it that the disciples saw it and believed further still and followed Jesus more faithfully still, and yet no one else seemed to be impacted by this? In the same way, why are some of you this morning fighting off sleep while others of you are amazed that this is our Christ? Why, why is that? Why are some of you, why have you grown up hearing the gospel your whole life and you don't believe it? And others, I'm telling you, the very first time I heard it, I heard it. <laughs> like it was 19 years old, but I, I don't think I'd ever heard it before. And instantly I knew it was true. Why, why does it work like that? The answer is really important and will become an increasing focus of John in his gospel. In short, the answer is the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace the sovereign grace of God that Jesus came to purchase on the cross. Let's pray that it would flood over us right now and through our time in this gospel. Let's pray that God would cause us to see, believe, Jesus.